0: Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 204 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this Barkhart Foundations episode where we examine one very specific aspect of the spirits and cocktail world so that you can walk away feeling like an armchair expert in the subject. This time around, I'd like to invite you into my anatomy theater to witness a post-mortem examination of a large-scale milk-clarified cocktail that I recently helped to create for the wedding of my friend and co-founder, Ethan Hall. I thought this would be useful as an in-the-trenches analysis of how to take a cocktail from concept to reality at an ambitious but technically achievable volume of about four to five gallons for roughly 40 guests. This is a time when in-person weddings are now beginning to become feasible once more. And so if anyone out there is considering creating any sort of batched cocktail to serve a large group of people, I feel like some of the victories and missteps that I experienced during this process will be helpful. I'm lucky in that I have a lot of experience and probably slightly more industrial tools than the average person, but none of the equipment that I employed was expensive or hard to acquire. It's more about how you deploy your materials and techniques that matters, and that is exactly what I'm here to walk you through. But before we start talking about milk clarification, filtering, racking, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff, let's take just a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is Dave Arnold's boozy spin on the Arnold Palmer. To make it, you'll need two ounces of milk-washed tea-infused vodka, which I'll walk you through in a second, one half ounce honey syrup, one half ounce lemon juice, and two drops of saline solution or simply a pinch of salt. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously for about 15 seconds, then strain into a chilled coupe glass, and enjoy. The story behind this cocktail is that Dave Arnold, the author of Liquid Intelligence, was called upon to create a boozy riff on an Arnold Palmer, which is usually a 50-50 blend of iced tea and lemonade. He wanted to do this by infusing tea into vodka, but the problem was that this left the tea tasting extremely tannic, which threw off the entire drink. So Dave decided to milk wash his black tea infused vodka. He created it by infusing about 30 grams of black tea in a liter of vodka for about half an hour, then milk washed this infusion to take out the large tannins from the tea then milk washed this infusion to take out the large tannins from the tea, rendering it much rounder, softer, and more palatable. Now we'll cover the process generally of milk washing later in the episode using actually the very section of liquid intelligence that Dave wrote featuring this cocktail. It should be noted that milk washing a spirit by itself is a little bit different than creating a milk clarified cocktail. In this instance, Dave is using the milk to treat a single ingredient that is then subsequently used in a totally separate cocktail application. I wanted to feature it here because it works slightly differently from the process that I'm about to dig into for this episode, but is nonetheless an important and complementary tool in the repertoire of a modern home bartender. Liquid Intelligence, Dave's book, is one of probably five cocktail books I'd recommend for anyone who wants to take mixology seriously. So if you haven't already invested in it as a technical guide to contemporary booze alchemy, I'd highly recommend doing so. But for now, let's jump straight into my most recent misadventure, attempting to milk-clarify several gallons of Jungle Bird cocktails. First, let's set the stage and describe the occasion and the cocktail that we designed for it. A while back, my good friend Ethan Hall, who's been a guest on this show many times, announced that he and his lovely girlfriend were engaged to be married. And I knew immediately that no matter where this wedding was going to happen, no matter what it looked like, I was going to make sure that there would be some kind of badass drink involved. I've done it a few times in the past where I've had to work with wedding caterers to batch a custom drink or teach them a specific cocktail build to serve to guests at a wedding reception, and I was also aware that there are many ways to skin the cat of making sure people at a wedding are properly quenched with festive tipples. I was confident that we would have this well in hand. So, as the wedding date was chosen and Ethan and his fiancée gradually zeroed in on a venue, despite the many inconveniences and uncertainties posed by the pandemic, we started kicking around some ideas. Eventually, Ethan and his fiance settled on the Jungle Bird as the format that they wanted to feature. And when all the logistical dust settled, we realized that the best way to get this cocktail to the guests was going to be in the form of a pre-bottled drink that would be waiting for them in a gift bag when they checked into the hotel. The venue was going to run the bar for the wedding reception, but that didn't mean we couldn't give friends and guests a really special drink to enjoy before or after the occasion at the time and place of their own choosing. Bottled cocktails are great for that sort of thing. But here's the problem, folks. Here is the sticky wicket, the fly in the ointment. A jungle bird contains fruit juice in the form of lime and pineapple, and fruit juice ain't stable unless you clarify it. Now, if you were to go into a cocktail bar and order a Jungle Bird, the bartender would shake it up for you on the spot and you'd be finished with it long before the solids in the fruit juice dropped out of suspension and ruined the flavor and texture of the drink. But because we were going to bottle this cocktail for our guests to enjoy at a time as yet to be determined, clarification suddenly became the order of the day. Way back in episode 76, we did a whole show on how to make milk punch, which is a type of milk clarified cocktail. That episode walks you through the history of milk punch as well as the science behind why something boozy, acidified, and perfectly clear can remain stable and uncompromised by mold or bacteria, even if it sits on a shelf at room temperature for years So, if you need the 101 crash course on Milk Punch, I'd recommend starting there. Again, that is episode 76. But, back to this jungle bird. Whenever you're trying to do something creative, I find that having a set of constraints actually works in your favor because it narrows down a universe worth of possibilities into a manageable and manipulatable set of options. So, let's look at what those options were for our jungle bird starting with the recipe itself. First, the booze. A standard Jungle Bird cocktail contains an ounce and a half of rum, traditionally black strap rum. This is an unofficial rum category more like a rum style, you might call it, and it's a little bit hard to define except to say that the end product is somehow flavored using blackstrap molasses, which is the darkest, least sweet, and most bitter or acrid tasting version of molasses. Basically, it's what you get when you've boiled almost all the sugar and water out of the previous versions of molasses, which are much lighter and sweeter. To make things more complicated, some rum producers actually ferment blackstrap molasses and use it as their distillate base, but the vast majority of rum makers in this category, especially the more commercial brands, just add it after the fact as a sweetener and flavoring agent. Now, why is blackstrap rum traditional in a jungle bird? Well, that drier, slightly bitter note is going to help balance the brightness and sweetness of the other ingredients in the drink, namely pineapple juice, lime juice, simple syrup, and Campari. But as Ethan and I talked through the possible builds we could do for this batch cocktail, we came to the conclusion that the guests might not really vibe with a super funky blackstrap rum. It can be a bit of an acquired taste, and let's face it, weddings aren't generally when you wanna break out your controversial or experimental flavors. So we figured what we'd do is dial things back just a half a step by using a custom blend of Jamaican rums designed to evoke just enough funk to make the cocktail sing. It is a jungle bird after all, but not so much that we'd upset the more mainstream palates on the guest list. So what did our custom rum blend look like? In the end, we settled on a blend of two parts, plantation dark rum, two parts the funk Jamaican unaged rum, and one part Smith & Cross Jamaican style overproof rum. The Smith & Cross was the booze bomb and the hogo bomb in this situation. The funk formed the nucleus of the classic Jamaican flavor we were aiming for, and the much milder plantation dark rum acted as a sort of binder that helped meld everything together. So at this point in the process, we know our cocktail. We know how we want to make it approachable for our guests, and we know that we need to clarify this sucker and stick it in bottles. We had about a month before the big day, which was plenty of time to divide the work and get down to business. Ethan took the lead on sourcing the booze, and to be completely transparent about the rum blend I just described... This was partially dictated by what rums we had access to here in D.C., so it is worth considering the advantages and pitfalls of your local market as you're trying to source ingredients. D.C. happens to be a very wide open market, but other states in the U.S. are much more restrictive when it comes to what's available, so sometimes a trip across state lines might be worth considering depending on where you live. For the fresh ingredients, I turned to our specialty produce provider that we use for making our cocktail bitters. We constantly place orders for stuff like fresh citrus and fresh ginger anyway, so it was no bother to throw some pineapple juice into the mix and add a few extra pounds of limes to our next order. I also, to be honest, I got a little bit lazy and I ordered some pre-made simple syrup from them because... I knew the last thing I wanted to do was have to make that stuff stovetop when I also had to do a bunch of juicing. Now, if you don't happen to operate out of a commercial kitchen and happen to be sourcing produce for a large format drink, the grocery store is only going to be maybe 20 to 40% more expensive than what we paid from a distributor. And that math generally works out unless you need some crazy amount of citrus. So Unless you're making like twice the amount of drinks that we made, maybe don't stress out too, too much on the fresh citrus front. Next, I cruised some bulk bottle websites and sent Ethan a few bottle options to see what he liked, see what he thought about them. The two sites we focused on primarily were SpecialtyBottle.com and BirchBottle.com. That's B-U-R-C-H. And as a little aside here, most people don't realize that a number of companies out there are willing to ship one, a handful, or a few cases worth of bottles right to your door. Of course, the cost continues to go down per unit as you order larger and larger quantities, but glass bottles are non-controversial commodity goods that aren't really all that regulated, so they're generally easy to source even as a civilian. But the catch is, you gotta go somewhere other than Amazon to find them. Another caveat I'll give is that here in the U.S., We're currently in a bit of a glass crisis due to supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic. We don't manufacture whole lots of glass no more here in America. And the stuff that we do make tends to be expensive. So if you're purchasing from one of those bulk bottle suppliers, you're certainly buying stuff that was made overseas, which means you're subject to any number of possible disruptions in the supply chain. So although Ethan and I had to look at a few different bottle shapes and sizes before we could find one that was in stock and attractive to us, we did finally settle on a 375 ml or roughly 12 and a half ounce clear round bottle with a screw top closure. I mentioned that term screw top because your other popular closure option is going to be something called a T top, which is your classic cork or synthetic rubber stopper that goes into the bottle attached to a round wooden or plastic disc. So I ordered our bottles and our screw top closures and I sent Ethan over to Canva to design the label for this creation, which we had affectionately named the Lovebird. Now, Canva is a free web application that's it's basically Photoshop lite. Everything's drag and drop. You can upload photos. It's almost completely idiot proof. So if you need to design anything quickly, I highly recommend it. He designed a three inch by three inch square label, which I then downloaded and sent over to Sticker Mule, which is a service I've used for modern bar cart stickers in the past. So I knew it was going to be good quality. And once the orders were placed for the bottles and for the labels, all we needed to do was wait for everything to arrive and then actually make this damn drink. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. The main batching and clarifying event took place about five days before the wedding. And this turned out to be a very good thing, as we'll find out in just a moment. I woke up and used a vintage Proctor Silex juicer called a Juice It to get about 40 ounces of fresh lime juice from those limes I ordered from our specialty foods distributor. This took about an hour of my time, just so we're clear on what kind of commitment you're looking at if you're doing a similar sized drink. I could have probably used a hand press to save some time, but it wouldn't have given me as much juice as using the machine did, so I opted for yield over efficiency. As I mentioned earlier, lime juice is one of the problems we needed to solve for in this cocktail equation, in that we needed to get all those suspended solids out of the drink. So when the pulp and juice came out of the juicer, I passed them through a normal kitchen sieve to catch the big pulpy bits, then through a finer mesh strainer like you'd use to double strain a daiquiri, and then finally through a nut milk bag or jelly bag. These things are absolutely brilliant for filtering juices, so if you're doing any sort of large format batching, definitely order one for yourself. They're completely reusable, made of nylon, and they cost less than 10 bucks. As a quick little note, what you see me doing here with this little extra step it seems of par clarifying the lime juice is hedging my bets. I knew that in principle we should be able to clarify this cocktail just using milk curds but there's no reason that I couldn't, like I said, par clarify that lime juice ahead of time to optimize for the best possible outcome. This type of little step really shows that you understand how to take a set of raw ingredients and transform them for the end outcome that you're striving for. So maybe not something that everybody would do, but it's something I wanted to do just to be conservative. Later that morning, Ethan rolled into my kitchen with a few bottles of Campari, three different types of rum, and a gallon of whole milk. This is an important detail. Through trial and error, I've found that whole milk does a much better job clarifying than skim, 2%, half and half, or heavy cream. So long story short, just use whole milk and take my word for it. Also... While we were doing this, I had my trusty copy of the aforementioned Liquid Intelligence open to the section about milk washing and clarifying. This turned out to be important for our order of operations because in a caption on page 271, Dave writes, quote, always add the liquor to the milk, not the other way around, or the milk will instantly curdle, end quote. Now, keep in mind that in this scenario, he's referencing just that black tea infused vodka that we talked about during the featured cocktail, which does not contain any citrus. So if if Dave Arnold is saying that there's a risk of curdling even before citrus enters the equation, then you'd better believe that I was paying attention and trying to customize my order of operations to that fact. So here's what we did. In a five gallon brewer's bucket, which is just a regular food safe plastic bucket that has a lid and a spigot at the bottom, we first poured a gallon of milk, followed by our rum, Campari, and simple syrup. This mixture looked exactly like strawberry yoohoo, which was both intriguing and slightly disturbing at the same time. So at this point, we've got a little bit less than two and a half gallons of liquid in this bucket, to which we then added our blend of lime and pineapple juice, 40 ounces of the lime and 120 ounces of the pineapple, which works out to about a gallon and a third of tart fruit juice. When you add your citrus to your milk and booze combo, what you're really looking for is the formation of curds. And these little wads of milk solids float around and mop up any of the suspended particles in the beverage that might be floating around, preventing it from being completely clear. So we gave it some gentle stirring, and we began to see our curds form, which meant that we were on the right track. Now here's where things got complicated, or maybe we just got a little impatient. After letting the blend sit in the brewer's bucket for about five minutes, we decided that we were going to try and filter our creation, which in hindsight was probably the worst thing we could have done at this moment. And that's because as we started dumping this liquid through strainers and filters of various sizes, we turned our milk solids from nice big curds into tiny little curds, which it turns out are much harder to filter. In this moment, as this splintering of curds was occurring. I knew that we were a little bit hosed and I knew there was going to be a much higher loss rate associated with filtering out the milk, which would then subsequently give us a lower yield than we were originally expecting for this batch cocktail. And that was kind of a problem because we were trying to make about as much as we needed. So I went into damage control mode I knew we needed to let this mixture sit so that the curds could settle. So I took a bunch of the lime husks that I had left over from juicing earlier that morning, I threw them in a nylon nut milk bag, and I hung that bag inside the cocktail so that it could take on some of the oils from the lime peel as the curds settled over the course of about half a day. This was because I was anticipating the need to supplement with extra ingredients before bottling, which did indeed happen. More on that in just a moment. Over the next two days, yeah, this turned into a three-day project, two processes became rather important, filtering and racking. The downside to filtering is that it's tedious and time-consuming. The upside is that it can be done well if you simply focus on passing your liquid through smaller and smaller holes. If you get antsy and you start by just pouring your milk punch straight into a coffee filter, for example, you're screwed. The filter is gonna immediately clog and you're gonna be at a complete standstill. But if you have patience and use your head, it can be done correctly. This is where racking comes in. And basically all that racking means in this context is letting something sit so that solids can settle to the bottom. Remember how immediately straining this cocktail was a big mistake? It's because we didn't let those curds separate from the booze before we started straining. So after the fact, and with these smaller, more problematic curds, I wanted to accelerate the racking process somehow. So what I did is I passed everything that I could through a nut milk bag and then an even finer mesh filter. I then kept transferring the pale pink chalky looking liquid into every tall, round, empty liquor bottle that I could get my hands on. I stuck these liquor bottles in the fridge to let them settle, All Right, this is the racking part, and after about a few hours, I was able to very carefully pour the top 75% or so through a coffee filter while recycling the bottom 25% back through these rough filters, which were always just kind of constantly dripping into a bucket or a stock pot as I answered emails and did work in the background. So, to recap that, I was racking the kind of cloudy milk punch into these tall, thin bottles, which really encourages the solids to get to the bottom, right? And the nice thing about these tall bottles is that if you really pour them out gradually, that bottom doesn't get disturbed until you you really get to the literal tipping point of the bottle where it's almost at 90 degrees. So it's a very efficient way to rack things if you're using, first of all, round vessels, and second of all, very tall ones. Now, one thing that could have saved me, a whole lot of filtering here is something called a separatory funnel, which you can see on page 284 of Liquid Intelligence. Basically, this is a large conical glass vessel with a valve on the bottom that allows you to purge the solids that settle out from a suspension without disturbing the perfectly clear stuff on top. Now, a separatory funnel is not a common kitchen tool. It's more designed for lab stuff. But if you envision yourself doing a lot of milk clarifying and feel that saving time is worth the investment, you can pick up a one liter separatory funnel on Amazon for about 50 bucks with two liter models available around 100 bucks. The advantages of a separatory funnel are that they're way more affordable than a culinary centrifuge, and they also allow you to sidestep some of the more complicated freeze, thaw, or gel-related clarification processes described in Liquid Intelligence. So again, they're not hyper-practical. You know, there's probably something you could buy for your kitchen that's going to serve you better than a separatory funnel, but I certainly wish I had one during this large-scale cocktail experiment. So let's fast forward through a couple days of filtering and racking, racking and filtering, to the point where I had successfully clarified about eight liters of Jungle Bird cocktails, which unfortunately left us roughly two liters short of our end goal. So what do you do in this case, right? You've got a bunch of people who are coming for a wedding, and you don't have enough cocktail to serve all of them. Well, the first thing I do is I didn't freak out. I was like, all right, we're going to have to supplement this somehow. The only thing we need to optimize for, well, really there's two things. One, it still needs to be clear, and two, it needs to taste good. So what I did is I took the Jungle Bird recipe that we started with. I scaled that to two liters, and I realized that all I needed was really one bottle of rum, about a third of a bottle of Campari, which I already had, about eight ounces of simple syrup, which I had more than enough of left over, and something clear that kind of walked and talked like lime juice. Pineapple juice, I kind of thought of. I tried to pass some of that through a coffee filter, but it turns out that pineapple juice is even more miserable to clarify on its own than lime juice. So unfortunately, in terms of what I was adding to supplement to this cocktail, pineapple juice just didn't and couldn't make the cut due to time constraints. So I ran to the liquor store. I grabbed one more bottle of clear rum because it would completely ruin the color if I was going to add aged stuff. Then I created a citric acid solution with water and powdered citric acid until it tasted roughly as acidic as lime juice. And really all this looks like is you take a teaspoon, you add it to a liter of water, you stir it up, and then you taste, right? You're, You're basically creating lemon juice in this context. Unfortunately, I didn't have powdered malic acid, which is the other component that would have allowed me to create something more akin to lime juice. But this is where my decision to soak those lime husks really paid off. I added a little extra lime flavor when I realized that our curds were broken because I suspected that I would have to add some less authentic citrus flavor later on. And if anyone is kind of cringing at the whole citric acid thing, it's a probably the most common food stabilizer out there. It's in so many things that you eat that if you're having like a weird reaction to citric acid, which is just dried lemon juice, you shouldn't be. Like it's, it's, a, it's a tool that you should embrace in your toolkit and use strategically rather than something that you should kind of turn up your nose at. So once I gathered all these supplementary materials, I added them to our very clear and somewhat skin or peach-toned clarified jungle bird. And I also added about a half a gallon of distilled water for dilution because remember, jungle birds are generally shaken when you're at a bar, which adds that chill but also the dilution factor. And when I added all of these supplementary materials, the happy result was that the end cocktail went from a decent shade of kind of pale tangerine, right, somewhat festive, to a much more evocative shade of pink, which seemed extremely fitting for a cocktail called the Lovebird. So the moral of the story here is that it might pay to think about what color you want your end product to be after milk clarification, and see if there's a way to pull that off by adding a little something on the back end. Our end product, the Lovebird, was a happy little accident, but yours doesn't have to be. From there, the process was pretty quick and easy. We had the exact volume that we needed. I bottled the cocktails using a measuring cup and a funnel to ensure that I was putting exactly 375 mLs in each bottle. And this is another great use case for the brewer's bucket because it's got that spigot. So I was literally able to just pop that spigot on the front of the brewer's bucket, fill up my 375 mLs, close the spigot, funnel it into the bottle, and that was that. I capped them, I wiped them down, I applied the labels, and I whisked 30 or so bottled cocktails off to Ethan so that he could assemble his welcome bags the day before the rehearsal dinner. This was a long and fairly complicated process, but there's two primary takeaways I'd like to leave you with besides all the important process-related details that I just described. First, when you're designing something custom like this, there's a real value in collaborating with someone. I came up with the milk clarification idea, and it was Ethan who brought the concept of a custom rum blend to the table. Working together with someone allows you to sanity check your own ideas and methods, and it just overall makes the process more enjoyable. You know, it feels good to collaborate with people. Secondly, don't be afraid of creative pivots. We broke the curds, whoops but it turns out that was an opportunity to infuse some extra lime flavor while the curd settled. Looks like we're two liters short, whoops, but it turns out that was an opportunity to make the color of the cocktail even more beautiful. The reason why I try to teach the basics, the mechanics, and first principles of spirits and cocktails on this podcast is because you don't have to be a master mixologist with a whole kitchen full of industrial, professional equipment to pull off something like bottled cocktails for 40 people. You just need to understand some of the basics, like how things react when they're combined, and how you can reverse engineer a flavor using different ingredients if you find yourself in a pinch. I'm happy to report that the Lovebird cocktails were a big hit with guests at the wedding. They enjoyed the flavors, the clarity, the color, and the bottled presentation. I will have pictures and video of many different phases of this process over on the show notes page, as well as links to different bottle suppliers and sticker places where you can you know, potentially source materials for your next bottle cocktail project. And again, you can find that at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this Barcart Foundations episode. I hope you learned some things from my recent adventures in milk clarification, and I also hope that if you try your hand at something similar, you'll share your results with us on social media. Just remember, if at all possible, don't break those curds. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, a fancy wedding cocktail concept courtesy of Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall, and a little bit of large format mixology magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.